First John, we're in chapter two. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14. Uh, initially, when I went down to study and this week, I thought, oh, I can get all the way to 17. And um, nope, I could not. So uh, this is an interesting portion. I was talking to Jeff about it earlier and um, pray the Lord will help us to rightly divide the word of God and find application. We can put handles on these truths and principles and uh, carry them home with us. But again, First uh, John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14. And I entitled our message this morning, Marks of Maturity. Marks of Maturity. I'd like to invite you to stand with me if you're there. Read these verses aloud. You can follow along in your Bibles. John writes, and, he, and he'll say this several times, I write to you, I write to you little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And I write to you little children, because you have known the father. And I've written to you fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. And I've written to you Young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. All right, we're going to pause there and uh, let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for this morning. I think even as Ben prayed uh, for this preview of heaven. There's some amazing things that we will get to experience when we stand before you face to face, when we come into that installment of our inheritance that you've promised us, Lord, the hope of heaven that we all hold on to, that anchors us, that secures us. Lord, uh, we we thank you because the thing that we get to do that we're doing this morning is that we will get to worship you. And we will get to praise you. Lord, we, we will all become part of the, the worship team. We'll all become part of the, the choir and the chorus of heaven, joining in that, that eternal song of praise and glory of holy, holy, holy. And worthy is the lamb who was slain. And Father, we thank you that, that we can experience that on this side of eternity. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would continually worship, that we would worship in all that we do, not just uh, what we sing on a Sunday morning, but Lord, that our lifestyle will be one of worship, that we worship you in our car and as we're at the house and at work when we <clears throat> put on our uniform, we go to school or wherever we might find ourselves, Lord, that we would be worshipers of you. And Lord, we thank you so much for this time of worship. We worship you as we read your word, that your spirit would speak to us, encourage us, challenge us. Fathers, we pray so often, we're so grateful for your love and goodness manifested in relationships and friendships that we get to forge and form and cultivate. Uh, Father, we, we lift up Odessa to you this morning as she, uh, her last Sunday. Bless her, so grateful for her time here with the family and getting to know her. Bless her, Lord, as she heads back stateside and just uh, reacclimates to life there, uh, Lord, may 
she go with our love and appreciation and so grateful for uh, families and friends that we get to hang out with. Father, be glorified in all that we do and say, we love you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Take a moment, greet a neighbor, say hello to somebody, introduce yourself to somebody new. I have to be honest, this a uh, little bit of an odd section for me. It was um, a tough nut to crack, if you will, trying to figure out h- how does this fit um, in the, the theme and the flow of what John has been writing. And, and I'll just confess that uh, I, I don't really know. Um, at first reading, it, it, it really doesn't seem to fit to me, the, the flow of his letter. If you, if you uh, are familiar with First John or you've been with us as we've been working through this, you may recall that in one sense, John has been giving us uh, kind of like a diagnostic, um, the, the spiritual test along the way and in, in, in basically walking his readers through, like if you make this claim, if you say these things, uh, there, there should be evidence of that. And if there's not, then he basically says, well, you, you've lied. You're lying to yourself. You've, you're lying to God. You're lying to others. And, and in many ways, he keeps it pretty straightforward, right? It's just basically a, a it's like a pass-fail uh, spiritual PFT test. You, you, either, you either passed or you, or you didn't. You either meet these, this criteria or, or you don't. And if you meet this criteria, well, you're good. And if you don't meet this criteria, well, you, you have failed. Uh, you're in this other category. And, uh, and he'll continue that um, a little bit. But before he continues his uh, assessment, and, and he's going to bring us from loving our brothers, uh, loving God, to not loving the world, and if we love the world and the love of the Father is not in us, that's where he goes. But before he gets there, between those two things, there seems to be this pause, uh, 12 through 14, this, he, he inserts an acknowledgement of these different groups. He affirms uh, fathers and little kids and young men. And so again, upon first reading, I just was like, man, Lord, how does this fit? Where, where does this, how does this flow with us? Now, we can certainly see that he addresses these groups. He, he writes to them very directly. We don't have to guess about that, right? Just simple observation. He's writing to, he says, little children. He says that twice, although there's a change in the Greek, which we'll note together. Uh, he writes to fathers. He writes to young men. And then again, just by observation, he provides the reason. He says, because of these things, why he's writing. And also observe with me that he changes the tense. I write to you. And then he says, I have written to you. So there's a present and then there's a, a past tense. And he, and he essentially repeats himself, right? Like he, he writes what he writes, and then he repeats some things. In fact, what he says to the fathers is exactly the same. Um, what he's writing to them, what he has written to them. So what do we do with this? Well, it's in the word of God, and so certainly we trust and believe that it's inspired, that the Spirit um, led John to include these things here. And so for us, we're going to take them as they are. But I do want to... Uh, suggest to you that there are two ways in which we can consider John's words this morning. 
The first way, and I think it's the appropriate way always, is to consider them within their text and the context. Uh, we want to make sure that we understand who he's writing to, what he had to say to them. And then, of course, we, we look for principles. What, how does that apply to us? Are there things that we can pull out of there that can speak to our lives today? So that's the first approach, and we'll take that approach. The second approach, and we'll also take this approach, I'll kind of insert it, is that uh, we can consider it in, in um, not just the specific audience, to little kids and fathers and young men, but the principles we can, we can draw in a broader term. But I suggest to you that though John is writing to these specific groups, that also he's writing to generations. There are different generations that are represented there. Um, little kids and fathers and younger men. And, and while the specific audience is male, uh, the, the principles and, and the metrics, right, the marks of our faith, the marks that he, he the reason why he's writing, th- those can be true and are true for every believer. And so that's kind of the angle we're going to take as well, that these are markers of maturity for all of us regardless if you're a little kid or not, regardless if you're a father or not, regardless if you're young men or not, there, there are truths there that certainly apply to all of us. Did any of you grow up in a house um, that, uh, well, let me just ask, did anybody grow up in the same house from like when you're a youngster to high school and a few of you? I envy that. I, uh, like many, you know, many here, I, I was a military brat and military kid, and so we bounced around and have that um, blessing of being able to be in the same household. And, but if you grew up in the same house or may, maybe if you were in a place for a while, did you, when you were growing up, did they ever mark your growth on a wall? Like, do you, you, know, you get to go back and go home and in the kitchen or in the garage? That's true of Brock. Like you have this marker of, of how you've, it's still there? You still mark you? Now the grandkids are getting Oh, no, nice. That's fun. That's fun. The next generation. Um, or maybe some of you, your parents, um, or maybe you as parents, you, you have every school picture of your kid, or maybe that's you, right? Uh, I've gone to some people's house and like every school picture of them growing up, it's like in the hallway or up the stairs, right? Even the, the, the years where there's no teeth. Uh, and then, you know, the, the great middle school years and, uh, you know, all of that. You, there's this, you, there's this, a visual marker of growth, right? You can see, oh, look how the, these stages of ages and uh, different grades. And of course, if you're marking, you know, on a wall. We, at our house, we just have a, this plank of wood that we've painted to look like a ruler. And so I looked at it the other day. I, I thought I was going to bring it, but um, I, like my, my kid, Ben, at, at 12 years old, he was taller than me. <laughs> So like, oh man. Uh, but we, we have one that we just carry around with us. You know, there, there's, there's these metrics and markers of maturity. And, um, and I think it's fun to look at those things. But we, we also find them in scripture. And, and in some ways, uh, that's what these three verses uh, cover as well. They, they are, if you will, um, some marks. They're not exhaustive, of course, but there are some marks of spiritual maturity, which we're going to consider. So I draw your attention back to verse 12, where John says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, John's going to write, I write to you, you notice with me, four times, and then he'll change the tense. And so 
But we, like Peter, we talked about this, I think, last Sunday. Like Peter's epistle, John finds value in the repetition of important things. And we talked about it's good for us to be reminded of things, things that we already know. Uh, it's good to uh, be stirred up, right? And so, as the saying goes, what gets repeated often is then reinforced, and what's repeated often then is performed. And so he's repeating himself, and he'll say or write that several times. Uh, he addresses them, this first group, little children. It's the same term that we read earlier back in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, my little children, these things I write to you. That, that word in the Greek, by the word, it's this uh, word technion. And, and it's a term that he uses several times. Uh, of course, as we mentioned already, he uses it in 2.1, but he uses it in verse 18. He'll say, little children, this is the last hour. He'll use it in verse 28. He'll use it in chapter 3 at verse 18. And essentially, he closes his letter as well uh, in chapter 5, verse 21, uh, where he'll say, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I mean, that's his very last comment. And so he uses this term over and over. And we talked again a little, so a little bit of a review. John is an, an older guy. Some believe he's probably about 80 years old at this time as he's writing this letter. Uh, and so he's kind of in the, the grandpa you know, age. And um, he's kind of a grandpa figure and, and certainly has a, a fatherly love that he is writing to his original audience. And that term, little children, though, uh, I would uh, say... Uh, arguably, that that term is a term that can be applied to all of us. Uh, though we might read it and think of our own kids or little kids, the idea is that from his perspective, uh, his entire audience is little children. And so if we make some application for us, at least identify as, well, that, that's us too. Um, well, we may not be, if you will, in the toddler class, uh, all of us as Christians, the Bible identifies us as the children of God. Uh, it's a great affectionate term, one of many that the, the Bible uses to describe us. And so John uses this term, and he uses it uniquely. Like no other uh, New Testament writer uh, adopts that same phrase. Brethren they do, beloved they do, uh, church they do, but not uh, little children. This is uh, unique to John. And so he, he addresses them as little children. Technion, it can apply, it can apply to all of us. And then he tells us, well, why, why is he writing and, and what is true then for all of us? Well, he goes on to say, well, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. And so John here, uh, as he has this uh, an intentional pause in, in the, the whole context of him writing about love and the love of God and not loving the world, which we'll get to next week, he, he, he pauses with this affirmation. And what is the affirmation? Well, he wants to ensure his reader, of course, as we read it today, to ensure you, to ensure us of our forgiveness, uh, of our salvation. Now, we've noted before, on one hand, John is not afraid to engage some tough things. He does not shy away from calling out hypocrisy. He does not shy away from 
noting inconsistencies and challenging your choices in mine and our lifestyle and the things that we say versus the things that we do. Uh, he shines a very bright light on that and he has no problem pointing out what is a lie and, and what is true. And again, we, we, we talked about this before. It, that, that's good. That's a good thing. You know, we, we live in a world nowadays where truth is no longer valued. All right, we, we live in society and a culture and a time where truth uh, is promoted as relative. Uh, the, the mantra of today is, well, uh, you have your truth and I have my truth. And, and so truth then is then subjective, right? It's just whatever you think it is. And, and then more and more, uh, the truth of the Bible, the truth of God, the truth of Christ, the truth of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel, it's being maligned and attacked and placed in this category as hate speech. Can you imagine John living in the world today? Imagine him calling out the hypocrisy of the church as a whole, the, the deceptions, the lies. You know, people seemingly by observation for me are, are, are becoming more and more afraid to stand up for truth. Because we see what's happening at this, this terrible attack and backlash, this demonic, really, backlash against those who would stand for truth, those who would um, preach and teach and live and practice the scripture. And yet, so we're, it's a blessing to have people like John and people like you to stand for truth and to live for truth and to lead and and, and guide your family and your marriages and if you're in a season of singleness. Because right? the way that the world will define that season for you and the expectation looks completely, it's polar opposite of what God has led us to do. And so there's, you know, there's, a, there's a place for us, each of us, to, to take a stand for truth and what is right. And church family, I, I dare say that yeah, we're being, um, we are being jettisoned forward in this culture where we will have to, and you better decide today, if I say this in love, but where you stand and to make a stand for the truth and make a stand for Christ. John affirms for his reader this baseline truth of every Christian the beginning mark of our maturity. And it begins with understanding that we have been forgiven our sins. Right? I mean, this is the, the, the toddler class, if you will, right? This is uh, our first grade. This is Christianity 101. And it's good for us to be encouraged and reassured of this very important truth that if you name the name of Jesus Christ this morning, your sins are forgiven you. Because I, what, I, what I suspect is that John has some more hard things to say. 
And, and, and again, as we'll continue to read and study, he's going to get in our face. He's going to step on our toes. But he, but he has this intentional pause just to affirm what is true, to affirm his love, to affirm what God has done in our lives. And he's already told us, he's reminded us, listen, we're not perfect. We can't say that we don't have no sin. That in itself is a lie. And yet we, we know that Christ has forgiven us and yet we still can stumble. We still can mess up. And, and, and at times we will feel like hypocrites when that happens. And the enemy will love to lie to us and say, look at you. You call yourself a Christian and you did that. You said that. And let's be honest. I mean, sometimes we can stumble big time. And sometimes we struggle and we can struggle daily. But this is what we cannot forget the grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, that your sins are forgiven you. That Jesus Christ, the righteous, has died for you in your sins. He took your place and mine when he died on the cross. And our sins are forgiven us. They've been removed. They've been taken away. John the Baptist in, in seeing Jesus would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, uh, on the Day of Atonement, oh, sorry, Yoko, this is my notes. Uh, there's this unique sacrifice where they would bring two, two goats uh, before the high priest and um, they you as a sinner would, would um, confess your sins and, um, and all that was, you know, that we had violated the Lord and, and transgressed his law. And, and the one, one goat would then be let free. And that's where we get the term in English, the scapegoat. And, and that goat then would run out into the wilderness and they wouldn't chase after it. They wouldn't go and find it. It would be set free. And then this beautiful picture foreshadow the gospel of, of how our sins then are, are they're, they're, they flee from us. They're taken away from us. The Bible says in Psalm 103 verse 12, that as far as the east is from the west, so God has removed our transgressions from us. Church family, I, I pray that you know your, your sins are forgiven you. The penalty and the power of sin has been removed from you. And, and so what, what should that do then for us? What's, the, what's then the, the, the application that follows? Though it's not here, I, I would say, well, we get to remember this and we get to rejoice in this. To be re reassured in this, that our sins have been forgiven. And, and if this truth doesn't well up um, in your heart and in your soul and spirit, joy and gratitude... Then, that I would say in love that you're, you and I were, were missing something then, something very vital in our understanding of the gospel. If hearing this doesn't then cause us to say, thank you, Lord, and, and want us then to love God and serve God and, and worship the Lord. And sometimes it's just good for us to be reminded of the fact that what makes the good news so good is because, well, there was bad news. We have to understand the bad news. The bad news is and was that we were destined for hell. 
that as we, again, if you're here last Sunday, we talked about this before and after picture, right? We, we once walked according to the pattern of this world. We once were children of wrath by nature, just as the rest. We once were alienated and separated from God. Nothing could bridge that gap. No amount of good works or all that we would do in our effort, nothing would, would bridge the gap between God and, and man. Only Jesus Christ. And what he's done for us. And so to understand the bad news that we were destined for hell, the depravity of our lives and of our mind, of our heart, of our soul. I mean, that's the ugly, ugly truth of our sinful hearts. I, I, I want to make a point a little bit outside of our text. Try not to do this uh, but in connection with the idea that we have been forgiven I think it is then when, when you and I realize how great our sin was and then the greatness of God's forgiveness, the greatness of his grace, the greatness of his love, it then should propel us to thankfulness and gratitude and worship that our hearts would be, again, um, saturated with just awe and wonder and, and love. There's a scene in the Gospels, uh, Luke records this scene, the other Gospels record this scene, but in Luke chapter 7, from 36 to 50, you want to take a note and read that later, there's this account where Jesus, he gets invited to a, a Pharisee's house, his name is Simon, and so he goes to Simon's house, they're going to have a meal. The religious leaders are there. And, and, uh, and then we're told that this, this, this lady with a, kind of a bad reputation, a woman of the city is how she's described, the sinner. So she comes and she, uh, she begins to, to wash the, the feet of Jesus. She begins to anoint him with oil. And as this is happening, the religious leaders are watching and they're indignant they're disgusted. And they begin to say amongst themselves, like, if he really was a prophet, he would know what kind of lady this is. And he would allow her to do this and touch him and these things. And so Jesus, who, who knew their thoughts, my paraphrase says, hey, riddle me this, Batman. <laughs> Drops this parable, this story, and he, and he talks about this creditor who was forgiving these two individuals and one of them owed five we'll just say you know five well it's denarius but five days of wages and and the other owed 50 days of wages and the creditor forgives them both and so jesus asked the question which one do you think is going to be more grateful which one do you think is going to have a, a a greater sense of of appreciation and love the five or the 50? And the guys rightly answer, well, the 50. And Jesus basically says, Japanese ping pong, right? Exactly. And then he, here's what he says. Therefore, I say to you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. And he adds, then whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. See, when we come to realize like how much God has forgiven us. 
The, the realization of who we were before the Lord. Our junk and our stupidity and our depravity. And, and I'm, I'm talking about like not lying to ourselves and like, oh, I was a pretty decent person. No, can I say this in love? No, you weren't. Maybe compared to me and others, yeah, but not compared to the Lord. And yet, you understand God has forgiven you. And by the way, past and present and future sins. And he tells us why. He says, for his name's sake. For his name's sake. This is where we begin. This is true of all of us. You name the name of Christ. This is the beginning mark of our maturing in the Lord to understand that we have been forgiven. For what reason then are we saved? We understand not because we deserved it, not because you earned it, not because you rated it, not because you worked so hard and you were such a good person. And understand this is not because there's something so special within us, so vital to the, to the mission and the kingdom of God that God just had to have you. Now, don't misunderstand me either. God loves you. You're the apple of his eye, the Bible says. But it's not as though we, we, we you know, here's my resume, Lord. I think you need me on your team. No. Whatever that might look like, God says, yeah, here's what the Bible says. That, that's a filthy rag. Our righteousness is like a dirty rag. There's no good thing in us. It's all, all because of God's mercy. All because of God's grace. All because of God's love. For his name's sake. That is for God's glory and to God's glory alone. God's so good in, in, his, in his glory, but also our goodness. That's the reason why you and I were rescued. Right? E each of us, we then are a trophy of God's grace. The book of Ephesians tells us it's not by our works. None of us can boast. Can you imagine if that was the case, how terrible heaven would be? Walk around like, well, I got here. Look at it because look what I did. It's like the me monster. Me and you and me, right? We always want to one-up each other. The Lord just kind of cuts that away from all of us. And there's no one-upping anybody. It's a very humbling reminder. And so the baseline for all of us, our mark of maturity, you name the name of Christ, little children, technion, that's all of us, your sins are forgiven. And your sins are forgiven for the sake of the Lord. It's a humbling reminder. Nothing we did, nothing we do, no performance-based. It's not by merit. It's by God's grace and his grace alone, right? Forgiveness of our sins, our salvation, it's a gift that God has given you. And that's where we get to start. And by the way, as I mentioned earlier, it's also a reminder that we're completely forgiven. We're completely forgiven past and present and future sins. And let me just add this. Sometimes we, you might hear that and be tempted to think, oh, then I, I can just do whatever I want. The Bible cautions us against that thinking. If, if upon hearing that me say that, if part of you is like, praise the Lord, thank you. But if there's a part of you that's like, all right, well, your heart rushes to think about how you can go sin. Listen, you're, you're missing the point. <laughs> And you'll cheat yourself from a greater blessing. 
We, we are redeemed for his glory and to live a life that pleases him. That's our aim. And guess what? When we do that, you and I will find then contentment and joy and satisfaction and pleasure when we live for his. Ephesians 1, 4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians 2.10 says that you and I are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God has prepared beforehand that you and I then should walk in them and live them out, pursue them. That, that's the idea. And so verse 12, we begin there, little children. That's the mark of our maturity. Verse 13, well, actually, skip down to... Let's take them by who he's addressing. Skip down to the end of verse 13. He says, I write to you little children. At least in my Bible, it reads the same in English, little children, because you have known the Father. And so, I'm curious, in any of your Bibles, does it change the term? Does it still read little children, or does it have a different term? I think God's children. It's actually a different word uh, in the Greek. Similar, that's why it's translated little children, but, but this time, instead of technion, it's the term in the Greek, padion. And, and technion, according to the Bible dictionary, ha- has more of an emphasis uh, of a child's relationship of dependence upon the parent. While this term, padion, again, really similar, has more of an emphasis upon the, children's, the child's immaturity. Uh, like a student, like a pupil, need for instruction, like the Star Wars Padawan, or Star Wars geek. Right? So what, what is John affirming this time for us here? Well, it's they've known the Father. Again, it, it, there's, it's a generation. Their faith starts with knowing that we're forgiven. It's, our faith begins with knowing that, well, we... We have a father in heaven who loves us. We, we, our faith begins with understanding we, we've come into a relationship, a brand new relationship with a God who loves us, who created us, who wants a relationship with us to know the father. And I would say to you that the most important knowledge that any of us can ever have in all of the world is to know God. Yet there's this, what's the term? Is it oxymoron? No. What's the other? Paradox. Paradox of our faith. The paradox of our faith is that once we come to know God, we are still in pursuit of knowing him. This uh, proper and healthy biblical knowledge of God of who God is. And that's a growing knowledge. It's a knowledge that we can mature in. Of course, that's what he's going to talk to the fathers about, having known God from the beginning. And so it's this, this journey and this process of, of understanding who God is, his love, his forgiveness, his grace, but then growing deeper in the knowledge of God, growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord, his character, 
his will, his ways, his plans, his purposes. And, and when, when that begins to fill in, it helps us to then have a, a it develops a, a proper perspective of our own life. Because I, I would submit to you that, that people who don't know God or who have a, an, a, a skewed understanding of who God is, it skews everything about their life, right? It, if a person doesn't really know who God is and his love and his kindness, well, they're not really going to know who they, they themselves are. And they're not going to really understand then what, why things are happening in the world and around them and to them. And so they'll come up with their own ideas and their own ideology and their own philosophy. And so knowing God helps to provide this guard and a gird for life. And so I'll just, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But knowing God is the most important knowledge to possess and to pursue. We're on this journey of knowing. And that's a mark of maturity. To know that we're forgiven and to know God and begin that to continue to know the Lord. Verse 13, we'll pop back up to the top there. He says, I write to you fathers because you've known him who is from the beginning. And so here, and in verse 14, where he says, I've written to you. So it's the present and he's written to, to fathers in the past. Uh, fathers, by the way, in the Greek is the same, but he says exactly the same thing. I'm writing to this you now and I've written to you before the same thing. So he addresses his, this particular audience, this particular subset of the group that he's writing to is odd. fathers. These are the, the elders. These are the patriarchs. These are the generational leaders. And while we, when we read little children, as I mentioned, it, it can emphasize anyone, male or female, all of us, John doesn't explicitly write to mothers. And he doesn't explicitly write to young women in this part of the letter. When we get to 2 John, he's going to open his letter with to the elect lady and her children. Which is also kind of interesting. Could be uh, a specific woman and her household and her family that he's writing to. Uh, or it could be you know, he's referring to, uh, to, the, to the church. You know, as the Bible often does, you know, um, refer to us as a bride. And so it's appropriate to have this kind of feminine, um, you know, title or description of the church. But here in this section, he doesn't address ladies or a woman. He, it's specifically male and it's specifically fathers in this verse. And so as I noted before, we, we want to consider that then in its context, its, its current context. And society in John's day was heavenly, heavenly, sorry, heavily, heavily, majority, heavily patriarchal. The way that God had set up the, you know, the worship system and society and civic laws. And so it makes sense that he's addressing the, the fatherly head of household here. And certainly there's a lot to say, right? God has called and placed the chief responsibility of leading families in love and discipling the family 
in the Lord upon the father, upon the husband. Now, it doesn't negate. It's not to say that mothers are not important. It's not to say that mothers uh, don't have a role. There's not, that's not to say that mothers don't have responsibility. Uh, certainly they do. And certainly we see that play out in scripture, a very important role and responsibility, very important and vital influence uh, even acknowledged in scripture when Paul writes to Timothy, he acknowledges his mom and his grandma. He says, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that's in you, which first dwelt. He doesn't say his dad. He says, and your grandma Lois and, uh, and your mom Eunice. And he says, I'm persuaded it's in you as well, 2 Timothy 1.5. And so, uh, again, when we mention this, it's not to negate the importance of moms. Certainly mothers are key and mothers are crucial. But if I can, because this is where the text brings us, uh, we can also not emphasize, I, I would say emphasize enough, the great influence and importance that a father who follows Jesus has upon his household. I, I could quote studies and cite statistics and I mean, forever, the, the, all of these studies that show this exponential impact upon a, a family and society where a father who comes to church, who, who makes faith a priority, who worships, who reads their Bible, who brings their family to church, when you make that a priority, what that, how that impacts the family how that impacts society. And again, I don't think I have to tell you, we're living in a time, I think both in the United States and we see even played out here in Japan, the sad crisis of, of fatherless homes. And, and we're watching society slip where boys don't know what it means to be a man. And, and how men then are to behave. And what does it mean to be then a godly man? A man who loves Jesus. And so fathers, you that are here this morning, you understand you're the anomaly. And I celebrate you. And, and we, and this portion reminded me that, man, we need to support and pray and encourage the dads around us. Amen? Amen. We need to. Because you turn on any TV show nowadays, any movies, right? And, and, and it's always the, well, not always, but a lot of times it's the dad, the husband that's portrayed as the doof. The, you know, the, the weak one, the dumb one. And so John writes to fathers. And what does he say? You've known him from the beginning. Again, Similar to little children, the idea of knowledge and this term know is the idea of, of firsthand experiential knowledge. It's a word that describes intimacy and sometimes it, it's used that way to describe an intimate knowledge. The challenge for us is, is this describe us as dads. As a Christian father who, it, it is the Christian father who's expected and commended to have a depth of relationship with Jesus and leading his family in faith. And so, Dad, again, thank you for being here today. You're to be celebrated and championed and affirmed. 
Now, as I mentioned, there's also an aspect here that can, that can be true for all of us as it relates to a generation, as it relates to spiritual maturity, the metrics of, of our faith begins with the assurance of salvation, begins with knowing God, but it then continues in terms of a, a maturing, to have a, an intimate knowledge of God, growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. We can and we should mature in our understanding of who God is and God's word and God's will, the, the outworking of these truths in our lives. And, and so what's, what's, what underlines this is this, the idea of this next marker of our maturity, that God expects us to be growing in our faith. And I would submit this, that regardless of where you are in the Lord, if you're a baby Christian or if you've been with the Lord for some time or if you've been, you're, you're, you know, if you're in the category of an elder, if you will, that all of us should be growing in our maturity. Again, this is, there's physical markers of development. You take your baby to the doctor. There's a growth chart. They're like, oh, your baby's, you know, this, at this percentage. There's certain behaviors. There's certain body changes. Certain movements, abilities that we would say that was appropriate for that particular age. By this certain age, kids should be able then to walk or to sit up or to, to talk, to feed themselves. For some of us, you know, our kids are shaving. They're not a change of tire. There, there's, I mean, there's these certain markers. And some of them are societal. But if there's any delay in development, then... We're like, oh, hey, we, special attention is given to that. For the, but for the most part, there are markers of, of healthy growth and healthy maturity. And that should be true for us as well. Remember the writer of Hebrews, like John, didn't, didn't shy away from saying some hard things at times. On uh, Hebrews 6.1, he says, hey, let's, let's move beyond the elementary things of faith. Let's move beyond it. It's the idea like, yes, we want to know that we're saved and we're forgiven and have a beginning relationship with God. He says, but let's move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be forward in maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from the acts that have led to death and a faith in God. And so that's the fathers. Basically says the same thing. And then, he addresses the young men, and we'll, we'll do this quickly. He says, I write to you, young men, middle of verse 13, because you've overcome the wicked one. And then go to 14, the latter half of 14. I, I've written to you, young men. So it's the same audience writing, very similar. You've overcome the wicked one. He says, because you're strong, in verse 14, the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. The, the, Greek here, the Greek word here for young men is neon nikos. It's the same in each time. It means youth. And notice what is the same in each of those verses. They've overcome the wicked one. See, John affirms that young men as warriors engaged in battle, proven themselves to be overcomers. And there's a sense in which, you know, that's true of society, right? It's, it's 
often the young men of society that go and fight the front lines of battle. And, and many of you can relate to that. I mean, even the descriptor, if you're watching any of the news about the, the U.S. border crisis and seeing these, these younger men from different nations, and often the way that the news will even describe them is they'll call them military-aged men. Right? Generally speaking, it's not the little kids we're sending to war, though some nations do that. Generally speaking, it's not the older men, although some of you do go to war. But it is the, the vigor and the strength of young men. And so John affirms them in their spiritual battle, affirms their, them in their success. And again, this is a marker of maturity, that we understand that a big part of our spiritual life is a spiritual battle. Right? We move from our, if you will, our adolescence, and we come to the real, realization like, ooh, the Christian life isn't easy all the time. There's some battles, there's some fights, there's some struggles. It's not a playground. It is a battlefield. And that's a very important part of our walk and understanding that. As we mature, we're exposed to this fact. We encounter spiritual warfare. There's a spiritual reality, and our eyes are open to that reality. And again, it ties back in, though, why it's important for us to cultivate a biblical worldview. So that we can see, that we can be prepared. That we don't get surprised, attacked, and suckered, punched. So that we don't consider the world around us through the lens of scripture, understanding there's spiritual forces at work, well, we're going to be ill-equipped for the battle. We see a direct cause and effect on this. watered-down, cotton-candy doctrine that leaves Christians malnourished, ill-equipped, ill-prepared, tremendously vulnerable to suffer spiritual attack. And that's exactly what happens. We have groups of young people leaving the church, departing their faith, because they were ill-equipped for the reality of the world's warfare. They're not overcomers. They've been overcome by the battle. And so what happens? They quit. Or they avoid tough things altogether. Church family, we're not doing our youth any good. We're not doing the younger folks any good by, again, I'm going to say this in love and appropriately, by coddling them. By just entertaining them. Right? And one of the things that I'm really blessed about our church and investing in the next generation, even as we see the fruit of that to a degree with our own youth group leaders, is that if you have a young person part of our church, like we want to equip them with the word of God. I mean, certainly they have fun and they do those things, but that's not our focus. We want to give them scripture. There's a generation that's growing up spiritually impotent. They have no mental or emotional toughness. They can't handle life. And so what happens? They self-medicate, they isolate, or the world medicates them. And so similarly, as we affirm fathers, we, 
We want to affirm and invest in and prepare our young people because if the Lord tarries, they are our future leaders. And we want to equip them to make an impact for the gospel. Again, certainly in context, this is a, a message for young people and there's a, an, a speaking of a generation, there's truths for all of us to realize, hey, we're in spiritual battle. But if I can, and I'll end here, th- this, I think there is a special message for our young people. And, and that's a lot. <laughs> I realize I, as I look, uh, you know, I was meeting with this brother and um, he's a little bit higher ranked and I'm talking with him and he's like, hey, Pastor Rick, I think you'd get along with my dad. I'm like, <laughs> I viewed him as like my peer. I'm like, how, how old's your dad? He's like, 52. I'm like, yep, I get along with your dad. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I realize, oh, I'm in a different category now. Um, and so the, the young, young people, this is a lot of you. And you too need to be affirmed and supported and prayed for and equipped. And, 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 and for us that are older, we, we need to step back and allow them to take lead provide space and platform for godly men and women to come. The world is hostile. And I'd say especially to young men who love Jesus. We live in a world that wants to emasculate our young men, entice them to live in perversion. And so how much they need our prayers and support. What makes us strong? We'll close here. I said that two, three times now, right? We'll close here. What, what enables us to be overcomers? I think John gives us that right at the end. The word of God abides in you. That's the answer. The word of God abides. It's the word of God that equips us. It's the word of God that gives us perspective of life. It's the word of God that allows us to see the reality of spiritual warfare. It's the word of God that allows us to know God and grow in that knowledge. It's abiding in the word of God that makes us strong and makes us grow strong. And that is why we spend a lot of time with expositional teaching of the scripture. And know this, the the end time of our study and the end goal of our study isn't just to be filled with more information. I, I would have missed the mark if I'm just trying to give information and facts. That's part of it. It, it, is, it is for transformation. It's so that you and I, when we leave this place, we'll be more in love with Jesus. Uh, of adoration and admiration and understanding of who God is. That we then love him and serve him and grow deeper and become more like him. Amen? Amen. All right. Now I'm really done. Right. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for this exhortation and encouragement. God, help us to to grow in the grace, the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of your word, and that by it we would grow strong, that by it we would have perspective of the world around us, our place in it, and the role that you've called us into that we might then impact this generation and the next for Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.